Welcome back to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. So Jason, before we start, I need to apologize to the audience. I uh, had the flu a couple weeks ago, and my voice has been um, not par for a while now. So bear with me. Um, Despite my lack of being able to communicate, I think today's guest was very intriguing and somebody I've been super excited to interview. Yeah, we talked to Don Ort at the University of Illinois today. He's the Robert Emerson Professor of Plant Biology and Crop Sciences at the university. And his projects are focused on improving crop productivity and resilience to climate change by really looking at photosynthesis and how to improve its efficiency in plants. Yeah, Jason, one project we really dug into uh, is the RIPE project, which RIPE stands for Realizing Increased Photosynthetic Efficiency. And this is a project uh, that they're really doing some cutting edge stuff. And I think they're really going to have an impact on, uh, you know, not only improving yield, but really having making a difference in areas like Africa where they may not be able to efficiently produce food. Yeah. And, and I think our conversation, it was very interesting and it got pretty technical at times. So if you bear with some of the technical discussion and the scientific discussion, I think there's a lot to be gleaned from it. So without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with Don. To kick things off here, Don, could you tell us a little bit about your background um, and what you're up to now? Well, I don't know how far you want to go back. All the way, all the way. (laughs) And so my undergraduate degree was in chemistry and biology at Wake Forest. I went from there um, to Michigan State um, and I really was interested in plant biology ever since high school. Um, and I, you know, I think it's in part because um, I grew up fascinated in plants and um, I wanted to know how they did it, you know, how they did so many amazing things and stayed in one place. And, and really, as an undergraduate, I got enamored by uh, photosynthesis and that's why I went to Michigan State. Um, and. You know, it was part because I think photosynthesis was a way to investigate plants um, and, you know, and still pursue where I wanted to be intellectually. And and at that time, uh, photosynthesis research was really the nexus of biochemistry and biophysics, and that's what I wanted to do at that time. You know, and that's what I did at Michigan State for my PhD. And, you know, from there, I went to Purdue for a couple of years as a postdoc. Um, where I pursued work in higher plant photosynthesis and then went for two years to University of Washington in the biochemistry department and really got into biophysics and looking more at um, the area of bacterial rhodopsin. And, and so this is a, a purple pigment that is a lot like the rhodopsin in the, in the human eye. Uh, but it's involved in a certain kind of halobacteria. And it's a proton pump, it's a photosynthetic proton pump, and that's why I was interested in it. Um, And then from there I came here to the University of Illinois. So that's kind of my background and summary. Um, And I guess the thing that has been consistent across my career is um, I've really focused on photosynthesis research. But it's very much evolved, and so you know when I first started in photosynthesis, we didn't know all the players. You know, we didn't know all the things that were involved. We didn't know all the processes, and so my early research was um, involved in defining some of those things. And I was particularly interested in energy transduction and how 
light was converted into ATP. But as time went on, you know, I think probably because I was interested in how plants grow, you know, I thought that the goal of reductionist research ought to be to learn enough, and once she started learning enough, to try to put it back together and begin looking at some of these processes at higher levels of organization. And so when I came here as an assistant professor, I made a very conscious decision to start trying to do that. And so it went from putting spinach in a blender um, to you know, starting to look at photosynthesis at the whole leaf level. And there was a person here at the time when I came here, John Boyer, who was really an expert in uh, leaf gas exchange and leaf energy balance, and I learned an immense amount from him. Um, and I also taught one of his courses, which you know really forced me to, to learn things. You know, and that was a, that was a big transition for me, and and I never you know abandoned my background. I, it was it was useful to have the background in biochemistry and biophysics, and we continue to at this day. You know, and and that evolved to. Um, taking the next step and looking at things at the whole plant level and, and eventually into the field, you know, and, and each one of those transitions is a, is a new learning experience. And the same thing that was happening, and at the same time what was happening was that um, the way that we did biochemistry and physiology changed in the sense that, you know, molecular biology became a core part of that. And, and so um, that was a you know, another set of tools that I, you know, that I picked up. And, you know, being here at the University of Illinois, and particularly in this building, the Institute for Genomic Biology, it really gave you the opportunity to learn new things. Um, and so we're organized in themes, uh, the theme that I lead. You know, it has everything in it from uh, computational biologists to physiologists to ecosystem biologists and um, and being co-located really is uh, is a huge advantage and it's also um, I think really important for chain you know training the next generation of students and postdocs because you know every one of people in my group are working shoulder to shoulder with people that do things that they don't do and they learn from them and so they're getting trained in a way that none of us faculty could train them so they, they learn from many of us. So I'm afraid that's a little bit rambling, but you know that's kind of the, the evolution of a, of a career um, from you know, starting out at very basic reductionist level and, and trying to put things back together. And, and I guess what really excites me now is that you know, for a very long time, photosynthesis was looked at um, you know, clearly as an important process, but it was never looked at um, as a trait. And, and I think eventually um, we got to the point where we could show proof of concept and it was starting to be considered a trait. I mean, early on when breeders looked at photosynthesis as, you know, as a trait, um, you know, by no fault of their own, they didn't look at the right things, right? And, and so they didn't find anything, right? Um, and and in particular, the basics of photosynthesis, there's not a lot of genetic variability. All C3 plants do photosynthesis pretty much the same way. But there is important variability, um, and, it, and it can be selected for. And, you know, what we're doing now is, in addition to the naturally occurring variability, we're introducing variability 
uh, using transgenics and synthetic biology. And, um, and, and that's guided by you know, computational biology and modeling. And so. so Don, to take this, the concept of photosynthesis, I think that you know, a lot of our listeners are farmers or you know, some of them are students and just the general public that's interested in agriculture and, and learning about plants. And we've probably all learned about photosynthesis at an extremely basic level, right? Um, plants take light and they make it into food. It's probably the most basic, you know, how we all learn it in high school. And you mentioned ATP, the, the energy source. When we talk about photosynthesis as a trait, so what you're, what you're getting at there, if I, if I understand correctly, is that there are little tweaks maybe that we can make to the process that can make plants photosynthesize more efficiently, or is that, um, maybe you can explain it a little bit better than that. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And, and plants way over invest in absorbing light for an agricultural situation. And so we have these canopies that have um, light leaf, leaf area indices, which is the area of leaves versus the area of ground. And, you know, in soybean, they can be seven, eight, nine. And 70% of all the lights absorbed in the first leaf layer. And so you have all these leaf layers there that are getting virtually no light, um, you know, but they're there. And, and so the, the problem with that is that for 75% of the day, on a sunny day, those leaves at the top of the sweeping cap, you're getting five to six times more light than they can use photosynthetically. Where one leaf layer down, it's light starved. If you could get more of that light deeper in the canopy, um, the efficiency of that canopy would go up. And that's what we want in agriculture. We don't want good competitors where, you know, one plant or one layer of the canopy takes more of the resource than can be used. Um, you know, we'd like good neighbors. And so, for example, one of the things that we've been working on for several years now is to get more light deeper into the canopy. And there's two strategies that um, have been taken. Um, you know, one work in my lab um, reducing the amount of pigment in the leaves. And so the idea is uh, to get more transmittance at, at the top um, to get more light deeper into the canopy. And we know from modeling that you don't want to do that early in the season when, you know, before the canopy is closed, because if it's, if it doesn't, if it's not absorbed by the leaf, then it just hits the ground. And, you know, and we know that doesn't do any good. And so what we've been working on recently is to use inducible promoters that when the canopy closes, then we can downregulate chlorophyll biosynthesis and any new leaves that are put on are, are light green. And modeling suggests that the, we need to reduce chlorophyll concentration by about 70% uh, to, get the, uh, to get the optimum for, uh, for light distribution in the canopy. Um, and you know, when you do it, um, you can demonstrate not only is there an improvement in uh, the total daily integral of carbon gain, uh, but there's also a nitrogen advantage because the amount of nitrogen that's invested in making that chlorophyll and making the proteins that bind that chlorophyll is really quite large. And at least in, you know, we've shown this in model species and we're trying to show it in soybean now, when you save that nitrogen, it's available to reinvest um, in the seed and it's available to reinvest in more photosynthetic apparatus. They do the former. And so they do reinvest more nitrogen in the seed. They're not reinvesting more nitrogen in photosynthesis to match 
the new light profile in the canopy. Um, but that's an engineering target, and so you know, you know we think now that we know about it, um, we may be able to, to engineer that. So it's interesting, and, and I don't want to get too off track here, but um, it sounds like there's a benefit to having less chlorophyll at those later stages. Is that so? I mean, does more how how does that benefit the plant? Does more pass through down to the lower canopy, or is, is that basically the concept? Yeah, that's the concept. Um, the the caveat to that is there's three things that can happen to light. It can be absorbed, it can be transmitted, or it can be reflected. And as absorption goes down, both transmission and reflections go up. And any reflectance from the top of the canopy is just lost light, mm-hmm. and that isn't doing any good. And so you have, you have to balance um, where, where the sweet spot is. And that sweet spot, according to our modeling, for soybean is about, is about uh, 70% reduction. That's really interesting from a soybean perspective because I would I would think probably then breeders have been almost inadvertently breeding against or, or breeding for more reflection by probably you know eye appeal of a deeper green plant maybe when they go out and make selections or yeah, is that the, not the case? No, the, I think that is the case, and, and you know when I've given these talks to breeders, they hate it, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and and so they're breeding for you know, making this problem worse in terms of um, the distribution of light in the canopy. Um, you know, having said that, it, it's, a, it's a difficult thing for breeders to select because you really have to have a canopy. You can't select it on individual plants because you won't see a beneficial trait. And that canopy has to be big enough and you have to select on the, on the plants within it. Moreover, if you're, you know, if you have plots that are the size of this table, and you have a tall plot next to, you know, next mm-hmm. to uh, a plot that isn't tall, um, you get shading, and, and that affects the outcome. Yeah. And so, it, it really, um, I think that breeders would really have to be committed to thinking about how to do this. And you know, and then there's the other problem that I brought up about when you do it, and so. If you just if you just express lower chlorophyll, you know, throughout the whole plant, uh, throughout the whole growing season, you don't see the benefit. I mean, you see the nitrogen benefit, but you don't see the increase in photosynthesis. It's interesting because uh, you know farmers maybe come out to their field and they see these plants that look a little more yellow or at least a little bit less dark green, and and they may not like that, but uh, they might like the additional yield that they might get from it. Well, and the nitrogen savings, but, but you know, I hasten to say that there's many, many reasons for plants to be light green, and most of them are bad, right? And <laughs> right. so, that, you know, there's lots of mutations where you get light green plants, um, and, you know, they are sickly plants. And so, in the soybean germplasm collection here, there's 67 different light green plants, um, and only two of those natural mutations uh, do you actually see this nitrogen benefit. Ah, interesting. Does this apply to corn as well? Same. It, it does It does apply to corn, maybe a little less so, and, and the main reason is that the corn is planted at a lower leaf area index, and it's also been bred for you know, more vertical angle, and, and that helps light penetration into the canopy. Um, you know, to some extent, the benefit from that has been taken up by going to higher planting densities, right? And, um, 
and so yes, it does it does benefit maize, but um, not as much as it does in soybean. So this is really stretching the limits of my knowledge in memory about photosynthesis, but corn and soybeans have different pathways of photosynthesis yes. that they use. So does that make a difference for this? Um, it makes it makes a little bit of difference because the C4 plants of which corn is an example have a higher intrinsic rate of photosynthesis. And so, um, you know, one of the ways, one another way to defeat this notion of oversaturation at the top of the canopy is to have more photosynthetic capacity at the top of the canopy. Mm -hmm. And C4 plants on a leaf area basis, you know, are about 30 to 40% more photosynthetic okay. capacity. And, and so, it, yeah. But there's very few C4 crops. I mean, right. there's corn, there's sorghum, <laughs> and there's sugarcane, you know, and that's it. Okay. I think we should reserve like three hours because I could just keep going on this topic for a while. But let's get, uh, Don, I'm just curious about the right project specifically. Could you tell us what the right project stands for, first of all, and then maybe what the mission statement is and what some of the problems are that you guys are trying to solve? Yeah, and so RIPE is an acronym that stands for Realization of Increased Photosynthetic Efficiency. Um, we're really into acronyms. We're really into brands, I guess. <laughs> All of our projects have, um, have acronyms. And, you know, really this started out um, with an article that Steve Long and I wrote um, in annual reviews of plant biology, oh, I don't know, 15, 18 years ago. And Bill Gates saw it, and in there we had a table, and and it was the, the article was about the prospects of engineering photosynthesis, and based on theory, what kind of increases that we would expect to see um, in uh, canopy carbon gain as well as in yield, um, and in that table we had you know what the change we wanted to make, what the increase that we expected based on theory and what the timeline we thought it could be accomplished in. Um, and I guess that Mr. Gates had an intrinsic interest in photosynthesis anyhow, and he really liked this table from the standpoint of, you know, it looked like engineering. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we were invited out to the Gates Foundation for what they called a convening. And so Steve and I organized, I think there were 16 people from around the world that all came to Seattle and we spent a day, you know, talking and presenting about photosynthesis to uh, a group of people in the foundation. Mr. Gates was not there at that, was not there at that time, but, um, but his advisors were. You know, and then about, so that was in February and then in April, uh, we get this call um, and they said, you know, we'd like to invite you to put in a proposal for $25 million. We're only inviting one proposal, um, you know, put your team together. And so we put our team together and, uh, and then what was really odd was they flew us to Seattle, uh, <coughs> put us out on a Bainbridge Island, and we all sat there for four days with the Gates Foundation people and wrote wow. the proposal. Wow, nice. <laughs> so, nice. I mean, it was a grueling four days, but it was done when we left, you know. And, um, and then it's crazy. And then it was funded, and so that was that was the first five years, and so it was five million dollars a year, um, and we had uh, four international partners at that time. Um, one 
well, there was us. There was one in Australia and then two in the UK. And 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 within that project, uh, we had selected based on modeling uh, different different strategies in which to to improve photosynthetic efficiency. So one of them was the light green that I've always that I've already talked about. And and you know there's several other strategies within within the project. You know all having to do with improving photosynthetic efficiency and all having first been vetted by in silico modeling to say, if we're able to do this, this is gonna make a noticeable change at the level of photosynthesis and carbon gain in the field. Interesting. And so um, we're now on, so we've just started January 1st, the third renewal. Um, and the difference between the third renewal and the, and the first two is that the first two were funded by ag development within the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, and um, early in phase two, Bill Gates decided that he wanted to set up within the foundation a not-for-profit company. And I think this will interest you because it's about licensing. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to be able to set up a company that would ensure one that the intellectual property that was produced by the right project, you know, would be captured and patented. Um, and then the second thing is he wanted a company that was set up that would be able to uh, negotiate um, with the ag industry for other kinds of trades, with the goal of creating crops for Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia, which are their target countries to put in the field of subsistence farmers. Um, and, and, so, and so what's different now is that we have this team with uh, the companies called uh, Gates Agricultural Innovation, and for whatever reason, their brand is Gates Ag One. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't figured that out. Um, and, and it's made up of, uh, I think they have about 25 employees now. I think that all of them are from industry, and all of them in one way or another are in product development. Interesting. And, and so they are engaging with us and we're engaging with them to try to take um, the things that we've discovered so far, largely in model plants, um, and to move them into some of their target crops. And right now, you know, for the work that we're doing over the next four years, um, we've narrowed the target crops down to uh, a few. And so it's not the whole suite of target crops that the Gates Foundation is interested in um, in Sub-Saharan Africa. And so we're looking at uh, primarily soybean, cowpea, uh, rice, and the, well, cowpea uh, and soybean. The rice is, um, is a convenience because with our collaboration at Berkeley, we have uh, we have a collaborator that can do uh, you know, crisper editing in, in rice much much more easily than in, in other crops. Um, you know, and then at some point we'll move on to uh, we'll move on to cassava and yams oh, and cassava. things like that, nice. or or you know or some of them. And and so it's it's quite a change uh, because you know now we're 
not doing as much discovery research and a lot of it is trying to get these traits into things like soybean. And as I'm sure you know, uh, progress is much more is much slower in, in these crops that are hard to transform and have more complicated genomes. And I was going to ask if the methodology, if you build the process, if that's plug and play, um, or if you have to, if it's back to square one for each it's, target. It's not back species. to square one, um, and you know, and and gay tag one is bringing a lot of expertise and hiring a lot of expertise, and so. We do soybean transformation here, but we don't have the capacity to do, you know, all the different constructs we'd like to do. And so, one of the things that Gates Ag One does is it um, it hires collaborators. You know, maybe you guys, I don't know, um, you know, to you know to to do uh, some of these transformations for us. Interesting. Um, but we are discovering that because you know a number of these things we want to get into the chloroplast and. You know, what worked in tobacco isn't necessarily working in soybean. And so then, you know, there is discovery research about, well, you know, this chloroplast RNA sequence doesn't work in soybean, you know, and, you know, when we try half a dozen others. Yeah, that's why it's kind of, I mean, you had mentioned all these phenotypic characteristics of the plants that also affect photosynthesis, right? Like maybe the leaf angle affects it and and the... uh, the amount of chlorophyll in, in the leaf and how much it reflects light. And so I, I would imagine as you, you know, I, I think you just alluded to it, but as you try to bring it, the, the concept into other plants, there's a lot of interactions there outside of just the, the photosynthetic process itself. Yeah. It, it, just like anything with plant breeding, there, you know, it, it's not always so simple as to just say, hey, I want to do this. And, and there's other effects in the plant, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you, you know, I mentioned you know, for the Light Green Project that there was another strategy that's being done by, being led by Lisa Ainsworth, where, you know, where she's looking at leaf angle. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's largely, um, that's largely a uh, naturally occurring genetic variability that she's trying to exploit in soybean and cowpea, mm-hmm. um, both leaf angle and, and leaf size and shape. Given you're using technology like CRISPR, I assume you can operate somewhat independent of some of the major government regulatory agencies that we deal with for transgenic technology, or do you, <laughs> or does it depend? I assume. Well, I mean, you know, I think I'm on the precipice of getting in trouble here, but um, you know, you one of the things, <laughs> you don't one of the answer. things, one of the things that's done in academia is we assume that we have freedom to operate as long as we're not producing a product. Um, and you know, and that seems to work. And so, you know, we've certainly used, uh, um, you know, the S thirty five promoter and so on. Right. And and you know, part of what Gatag One is there for um, is you know, if they want to develop a product that uses some something that's proprietary, um, you know, it's up to them to go out and, and get the permission to do it. Interesting. And you know, and, and that's what makes this. Uh, I, you know, I think potentially revolutionary from the standpoint of, you know, these are capacities that we don't have. These are contacts that we don't have. You know, and also there is a financial resource there where, you know, they can protect our intellectual property where the university just doesn't have the pockets to do that. You know, I I was on the phone yesterday with Gates had one lawyers, you know, and 
<laughs> we've got the third final rejection on a patent. They're not even phased. <laughs> they just go, oh, no problem. <laughs> we'll get an extension and you know, we'll try. You know, and when, now we have a new examiner. You know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's yeah. just stunning. Huh. So this is a, a really interesting project, and, and it sounds like this would definitely take up a full, uh, you know, multiple people's all their time. But do you have other projects you're working on too, or are you 100% focused on this project? No, I'm on three big projects, and so Ripe is one of the three. Um, the biggest project that I'm on is um, here in Illinois. We have one of the four DOE bioenergy research centers, um, and that was just renewed. Um, in December for another five years at $140 million. Um, and, um, you know, and again, this is a project that is, it's led out of Illinois, but it's an international. This one's not international, but it's multi-institutional. Um, and so about half of the funds stay here and half go to our partner institutions. But it's very, very integrated. Um, and I'm, I'm the uh, chief science officer of, of that program. Um, in terms of personal research, I, you know, I have a postdoc and a technician on that project, um, you know, but I have a significant administrative role in that project. And, and, and so that project is called CABI, which is the Center for Advanced Bioproducts and Bioenergy Innovation. Okay. <laughs> um, and, you know, and the whole, the whole concept is one, it focuses on perennial C4 grasses. And the other central paradigm to it is it's a plants as factories paradigm. And you know, our, we're the fourth bioenergy center. There were three that preceded us for, for 10 years. And they're involved, the other three are involved in deconstruction, lignocellulose production of ethanol or, or some other liquid fuel. And our idea was we're not gonna do reconstruction. You know, they're way ahead of us. What we would like to do is we would like to, the plant to produce something more advanced um, than lignocellulose. And, and so one of the C4 grasses that we're looking at uh, is sugarcane, and then we're looking at two grasses that are very closely related to that, uh, miscanthus and sorghum. And a big part of that project is to genetic, to teach these plants genetically rather than to accumulate sucrose in their stems to convert that sucrose um, into vegetable, into tag. Um, and, um, and so this has been reasonably successful from the standpoint of getting these plants to produce lots of tag. And so we've gotten the plants up to 12% tag um, in, in sugar cane and in energy cane. The real goal is to get them to do that in the stem where we are right now is they do it everywhere in the plant. Um, the reason to want to do it in the stem is then it can just go into the regular production line. Um, if you have some sucrose and you have some oil, you know, they separate and, and it fits very well into the production plant. Um, but right now it's everywhere and so it's in the leaves and, and so on. Um, uh, but, you know, I think that we've been pretty successful. Um, the, the other part of that project then Know, is, is also to take either the oil or uh, the sucrose that comes out of the plant and convert it in uh, microorganisms to other things of value. And the microorganisms that are being used are uh, the non-model yeasts, so the oleaginous yeasts that can 
they can take oil and convert it into high value products. And DOE has identified, you know, a few dozen products that are very high value. Um, and, um, and so we've picked four of those to focus on. And, um, and, and so that's, you know, that's also been reasonably successful. The third theme within the center is a theme for sustainability. And this is sustainability um, both from the standpoint of the environment, but also economically sustainable. And so none of these things are successful, you know, if they're not economically sustainable uh, for the producer as well as the industry. Um, and so it's a big project. I mean, there's 100 SYs involved. And, wow, wow. And then the third project is a project that we call Rogue. Um, it's also DOE supported. It stands for uh, renewable oil generated <laughs> with um, ultra-productive energy came. <laughs> so I told you really into <laughs> I think sometimes acronyms created and then the words are forced into there to make <laughs> Absolutely, I'm not responsible. Um, and, um, and this is also a project that is focused on increasing photosynthetic efficiency in C4 grasses. Uh, but in this case, it's not you know, it's not the paradigm of plants as factories. Um, it's it's more of a paradigm of just making more productive perennial C4 grasses. And uh, there's a little bit of overlap with the Bright Project, but because these are C4 plants, um, you know, not everything crosses over. And one of the interesting things that we're doing is um, is, you know, in a natural environment, uh, plants experience a you know, very fluctuating light environment. And it turns out in C4 plants, they are less efficient in fluctuating light than C3 plants. And um, we, we think the reason is that there's a mismatch between the C3 and the C4 cycle, and we think it has to do with meta metabolite shuttling between the two types of chloroplasts. And for reasons I won't go into, we think it depends upon the volume of chloroplasts. And so we're engineering bigger chloroplasts in, uh, in both the C3 and the C4. And the way you do that is you prevent them from dividing. And so you uh, can get these you know, quite large chloroplasts. And, uh, and the plants are pretty healthy. Um, and um, it also increases the transparency of the leaf, even though you haven't changed the chlorophyll concentration because you put in fewer larger packets. Um, and, and so this project really focuses on increasing efficiency and fluctuating light because that's what the real light environment is. You've got a lot on your plate. <laughs> Don, you've been very generous with your time here today. We always ask one question at the end, um, and I'm especially interested in your answer because, I mean, just you know, the span of your career, the, our understanding of photosynthesis to now, I'm curious, what excites you most about the future of agriculture? And are you optimistic? Well, I mean, I guess what excites me most is the thing that I've spent my career doing, you know, actually appears that it's coming to fruition where it can help address a great societal grand challenge. You know, it's, it's not going to be the only answer, um, but I think that it's going to be, I think if, if it's not exploited, we're not going to get to where we need to. 
you know, there are a lot, uh, the UNFAO is suggesting that in order to meet agricultural demand, we need to double productivity over 2005 levels. I don't think that's going to happen. I actually don't think that that's necessary, but certainly a 50% increase, um, I think, is going to be necessary. And, and that is a grand challenge, um, and, you know, and I think that we can contribute to that. And so, you know, that, that does excite me. I mean, the other thing that excites me are, you know, are the tools that we use. I mean, I, I remember, you know, not so long ago when you had a mutation and you wanted, you wanted to find the gene, even in Arabidopsis, you know, walking to that gene, as it was called in those days, you know, it took a year, right? You know, and, and now you don't even do an experiment if you have, if you have, you know, good yep. genomic sequences. You, know, you, you just go look forward to the database. <laughs> I mean, um, and, so, and so the power of that, and then also the power of big data. I mean, I think that there's lots of pitfalls in big data, and there's going to be lots of pitfalls in machine learning, but it's also very, very powerful. I, I suspect that even five years from now, there's things that will have happened that we can't imagine right now. You know, just just based on being able to deal with all that information in a systematic way. Perfect. Yeah. I think we're at time. Um, are there any websites you want to plug? We'll be sure to to link the right website um, on the show notes. Is there anything else? Your personal well, website you want us to. You can if you want, or you could also link the Cabby website and the Rogue website. For sure. We'll do that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, your audience may be less interested in bioenergy, but, but bioproducts, I think they would be interested in. So. Perfect. Because these are potential alternative crops. Lots of farmers. Well done. It's been a pleasure. We appreciate your time here today. Uh, wish we had a couple more hours with you. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thanks thank for your you. interest. Take care. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.